Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In this lesson, Nate talks about the process of getting right-sized, learning to see ourselves accurately in relation to God and those around us. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Okay, we're in week four of Walking Lessons. In our first week, we talked about the journey, how... um, In contrast to justification, which is instantaneous and accomplished, it's over, our place with God is secure, Uh, sanctification, this um, healing process that we're engaged in, is a progressive thing. It takes time. And it's not static, it's dynamic. We learn while walking. And we're called to walk with God in some of the same ways that Adam and Eve did back in those days, early days in the garden, because we have been reconciled to him. We're also called to walk with each other. And there's that beautiful promise in 1 John 1, 7, that as we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Well, the truth is most of us resist going on that walk. We don't. We don't really want to expend the effort. Uh, If we do have to move, we prefer some faster form of transportation, right? Uh, We're always looking for the helicopter that'll get us from here to there. And all of us have this inner resistance to to, to going on the journey. This voice that tells us that, you know, this place really isn't that bad. uh, The problem is not as big as some people might think it is. We really have everything under control. We're not in danger. We're not losing anything. There's always that voice that will keep us in unhealthy and self-destructive behavior for a very long time. Those are the voices of denial. We talked about that in the second week. All the strategies that we employ to res- in resistance to uh, facing the facts and moving out. God in his kindness and grace will very often bring us to points of crisis which seem like the end of the world, the worst thing that could possibly happen, but they're actually a marvelous grace because they open a window on reality. And for a moment we can see how precarious our situation really is. And there is for that moment a desire to do something we haven't done before in order to move to a better place. And then that first uncomfortable fact that we have to face, and we talked about this last week, is the fact that we really are powerless to make the change we want to make. Um, That's why we're in the situation we're in. We've been trying to do what we cannot do. This thing is bigger than we are. We do not have uh, uh, the resources on our own to conquer uh, this thing that, that has been holding us captive. So we talked last week about the the beauty, really, of powerlessness. We resist that, that admission. You know, uh, later in the afternoon on Sunday, I just, I, I should have given you guys, I should have suggested an exercise, given you an assignment to do last week, and I didn't do it. What I should have suggested, I don't know if you remember me saying this last week, you know, eventually most of us, if we're in recovery, we come first to the admission that there is one thing I'm powerless over, whatever it is that brought me in the room. X, whatever it is. And we'll typically think of that as our kryptonite, and we still want to be Superman. But eventually, we learn that 
X, whatever it is, is often what we have been using as a medication to numb the pain, frustration, anger, self-loathing that comes from our inability to control people, places, events, even emotions, things that we somehow have gotten the idea we should and must and can control. So in reality, the list of things that we're powerless over is much longer than we initially suspect. And the list of things that we actually do have some control over is quite short. So what I should have suggested last week was that sometime during the week you sit down and write a list of 50 things that you cannot control. 50 things over which you are powerless. The amazing uh, benefit to that exercise is once you've put it down on paper and admitted that you cannot control it, it's not yours, then uh, you're relieved of the responsibility of controlling it. It takes the pressure off. You can back away from it. You don't have to feel guilty about it anymore. You don't have to set yourself up for frustration by continuing to try to do something that's impossible for you to do. So I recommend that as an exercise. 50 things that I cannot control. Only 50? Yeah, <laughs> start on 50, yeah. No, I often, if I give that exercise to a guy early on, he'll go, 50? Yeah, the truth is it's a very, very, very long list. But um, I've told you that my purpose in this class is to convey to you over the course of 16 weeks what I've learned in 16 years as a Christian addict in recovery. And I don't know if I made it clear or not, but although I intended to be a star pupil, I'm a high achiever, uh, I was going to get this right from the go, it took me three and a half years to experience really any serious significant degree of sexual sobriety. I had some periods of abstinence, but sobriety is different. I'm still just crazy in the head. And that peace which passes all understanding eluded me entirely for those three and a half years. And the main reason why it took me so long to get it was my religious and intellectual arrogance. I had, first of all, it was humiliating to me to go to a 12-step meeting when all my programming, my Christian programming, was that those people were sub-Christian if they were Christian at all, that there was something dangerously heretical about what they were saying and doing, that real Christians didn't need that stuff. And here I was, out of options, sitting in the church basement in the middle of the week with a bunch of losers, right, looking for help. That was humiliating enough. And then I started getting triggered as soon as we got to step two. Uh, steps two and three of the 12 steps are, at least in those days, thought of as the God steps. And I actually thought that I could vault these steps because I, you know, I, could, I, could grand, I was grandfathered in, right? So step one is admitted we were powerless over X and that our lives had become unmanageable. For me, it's powerless over lust. Step two, that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's kind of it's just a power greater than ourselves. It sounds so loose and, uh, you know, just... John MacArthur would have a high time with that. It's just too dangerous, right? Uh, it's squishy. It's vague. Power greater than myself. And then step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. As we understood him, that pernicious qualifying phrase, right? I had the 
attitude when I got in 12-step recovery. And these people started talking about higher power. And all that. I knew that my higher power could beat up their higher power. So I really didn't need to listen to these people on any spiritual subject. They didn't have anything to teach me. After all, I have a <laughs> master's degree in God. I grew up in church. I know all the language. I certainly know the subject far better than they. They're amateurs when it comes to God. I'm here to learn how to control this behavior. And uh, so I really thought I could vault steps two and three and come to find out. I mean, it's, and it, it is humiliating when somebody who you regard as a Samaritan tells you that you have to start believing in God and trusting him. Because I had the rhetoric down. I got an email yesterday from a friend of mine, uh, Slavic with an unpronounceable last name. Um, I met Slavic about uh, a dozen years ago here in Franklin, a sweet man, a young man. He's a, uh, he's a Baptist from an Eastern European nation, and I know as much about Eastern Europe as the average New Yorker knows about the American Midwest. I'm not sure. They all kind of run together. He might be from, you, from Ukraine. I'm not sure. Sweet man, loves Jesus. And he's, he works uh, at a blue-collar job and pastors a little church of uh, immigrant believers. I got an email from him yesterday. Uh, attached to it was a photograph of the interior of a 40-foot um, uh, shipping container with a small pile of stuff at the far end. And he, uh, he said, I've been hearing from our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, and they are in terrible distress. They've been forced, many of them forced to leave their homes and their towns with only a moment's notice, with only what they can carry. They're living now wherever they can find a place under a roof. It's cold. They're sometimes sleeping 15, 20 people to a room. They don't have clothing. They don't have bedding. And so we want to help them. So here's the storage container. It's going to be in the parking lot of the People's Church, the Baptist Church in town, on Sundays for the next three weeks from noon to four o'clock. If you can bring anything, please do, and pray that God provides the $5,000 to ship it. We want to be able to ship within three weeks. They're in dire need. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, as I looked at it, here's Slavic, who I know is a brother, but he's out of my orbit. I've never been to his church. Um, he's a Baptist, which helps, because that gives him kind of an American connection. And I'm glad that he's got the shipping container in the parking lot of the Baptist church, because he's got a better chance of filling it there than if he was at a Methodist or Episcopal or a, a Presbyterian church, somebody who's uh, someplace where the dialect is different, is what I'm thinking. And the suspicious thing is that he's going to give... This, he's going to send this stuff not just to Ukrainian Baptists, but to Ukrainian Christians, some of whom are Eastern Orthodox and obviously cannot be Christians, right? <laughs> Isn't it crazy how tribal we become? 
So I'm thinking about this, and then it really starts to bother me because I've been seeing on the news about the Christians in Iraq and Syria that are being terribly persecuted. And you know what? It would be different for me if they were Presbyterians. I wish it weren't, but they're some kind of Chaldean Christians or Syriac or Assyrian Christians or they're Coptics and Christians in Egypt. And so somehow, I don't know, maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not. In my own heart, if I'm honest, it's there. We do this. It's this terrible religious arrogance. I'm sitting in this 12-step meeting and I'm thinking, this thing only got started in 1938. Started by a couple of brand new Christians who had absolutely no theological training. They were ignorant and unlettered men. God possibly, couldn't possibly have used them. No, this can't be a God thing. And look at the people who they've attracted. Alcoholics. And then other messed up people. Losers outside. God couldn't be in that. God couldn't be using the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The weak things of the world to confound the mighty. Things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. This can't be a God thing. If it isn't approved by the guardians of orthodoxy, then it can't possibly be God. It should be ignored if not persecuted. Right? You probably know that story from Judges chapter 12, the story of the Shibboleth. Do you know the story? The, the, uh, the Gileadites, the people who lived in Gilead, had gone to war against the tribe of Ephraim, and they'd won. Battle was over. The Ephraimites were in disarray. They just wanted to get back to their own territory. To do so, they had to cross the Jordan. And you can't just cross the Jordan anywhere. You have to cross at a shallow place, a ford. So the Gileadites set up checkpoints at every ford. And whenever somebody from Ephraim, and they were, they were cousins, basically. Whenever anybody from Ephraim approached the ford, they would, they would say, say shibboleth. That was their word for a stalk of grain. Well, the problem is, for the Ephraimites, is that their dialect doesn't contain a shh, that, that shh sound. And so if they said Sibboleth, the Gileanites killed them right there. And the Bible says they killed 42,000 Ephraimites over Shibboleth. That great schism between the Western church, the Latin church, that church where we have our historical roots, and the Eastern church happened coming up on a thousand years ago, 1054. A big fight over three words. The bishops in, there had been 700 years since the Council of Nicaea, and there were two different versions of the Nicene Creed that were in circulation. One version said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Another version said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Filioque. Three words. And that second version was the one that was most embraced in the West. And when in 1054 the Pope in Rome declared 
that from the Father and the Son was the right way to do it. Well, forget it. There was no, they couldn't live together anymore. The Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated each other. And then just started this painful, ugly history. 1188, there's still a bunch of Latin Christians living in Constantinople. There's a change in power. The mobs go to the streets. They're really upset at these Latin Christians, mostly for economic reasons, because they control the maritime uh, trade. And there's a massacre that night. 60,000 Latin Christians killed in Constantinople. Fourteen years later, the West has its revenge. The Fourth Crusade. Knights from the East march in and conquer the unconquerable city and sack Constantinople. And uh, not that many years later, in 1453, now they managed to patch things up after that. And they got civil, and they exchanged ambassadors. And at one point, the Pope even offered communion to the Patriarch of Constantinople. But in 1453, when the Ottoman Turks were threatening, they laid siege to the city. They called out for help to their brothers of the West, and no help came. No help came because of mutual distrust and this deeply ingrained feeling of religious superiority, right? And Constantinople became Istanbul. All right, long kind of rabbit trail, but that's kind of, that was me when I got to step two because there were shibboleths everywhere. If you go to a 12-step meeting, if you're waiting for the right words, as I was, you have to hit the right words in the right order in order for God to be there, is the way I was thinking. And there's some pretty squishy theology that circulates through 12-step circles. And so I had a very, very hard time. I had a patient sponsor who was a Christian, um, and it turns out most everybody in the room was a Christian. They were just keeping it on the down low because that's how it's done. And we don't want to make the non-Christians feel uncomfortable. God is bigger than that. What he helped me see was um, I was going to have to undergo a calibration of my self-concept. He explained it to me this way. He said, all of us addicts, and as I recall, he did make it that kind of a global statement. He said, we, there's, we have this common characteristic, he said. We think too highly of ourselves and too little of ourselves simultaneously. We are the proverbial egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Or to put it another way, the piece of crap the universe revolves around. Right? <laughs> The Apostle Paul says this, he writes this uh, to the Romans, Romans 12, verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. I love that there's sobriety right there. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now notice, it doesn't say, he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. He does not say, don't think of yourself highly. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's an important distinction. There's a middle, there's a middle. I certainly have this personal experience of careening between this 
overweening grandiosity and then this dark self-loathing. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. In step two, when we're doing step two, we're dealing with both sides of that self-concept. We have to deal with our own grandiosity, our own pride, and then we have to deal with our own self-hatred and self-loathing so that we can think of ourselves as we ought to think, to see ourselves rightly. It's called, uh, a common, common vocabulary in 12-step circles is getting right-sized or finding my place within the created order, becoming a man among men, rather than always a cut above or a cut, cut below the common run of humanity, joining the human race. Uh, let's deal first with, with uh, the grandiosity, the pride thing. It's interesting in the, the story that the Bible gives, that gives us uh, early in Genesis, uh, the, the account of the fall. You got Adam and Eve in the garden, in this wonderful paradise, and then comes this strange creature, the talking snake, and he comes with this appeal. First of all, the question, did God really say, uh, don't eat of the tree? And then he plants this doubt about whether or not God is good. Well, you know why he said that, the tempter says. He knows that if you partake of that tree, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. And that is the true temptation. It's not about the fruit. It's about becoming like God. Now, Jesus clearly believed in a personal evil being. He's quoted as saying in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's an illusion. There's a lot of mystery around Satan, the talking snake, the guy who shows up in Job as part of God's advisory board or whatever that is. And then these cryptic allusions in Isaiah and Ezekiel about this morning star or son of the dawn who <laughs> falls. The way I always had it described to me growing up by people who really majored in Satan and that was kind of, that was the theme of most every sermon. The way it was described to me was that Satan was at the top of the created order, an archangel, worship leader in heaven, I was told. Uh, there's some ground, scriptural ground, for believing that that may have been the case. But at some point, had this ambition that, in the words of Isaiah, I will become like the Most High. I will be like the Most High. And there it is. So, so it's an attempted coup, which managed to attract a significant number of followers, perhaps 30% of the hosts of heaven. And the rebellion fails, and he's cast down from heaven. But he takes with him this ambition, I will be like the Most High. And I came to see that in my, at the root of my addictive behavior was this same desire. I will be like the Most High. I really did, and I have to admit, still catch myself thinking that I really am a whole lot like God. Let's think about it. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. I behaved as though I was all three. Okay, God's omnipotent. God doesn't need any help. He's God. He's completely self-sufficient. He can do whatever he wants. And 
He, he has supervisory authority over everything. He, he can control anyone, anything. He's the master of history. He can do what he pleases. He's God. Amazing how much I'm like God. I don't need help. That was, I can figure this out on my own. I've, got, I've loved, one of the reasons I love being a pastor, even as an active addict, is I loved helping people. I love being the helper. I don't want to be the helpee. That's humiliating. So I never asked for help. I didn't need help. I'm omnipotent. And in a very, very underhanded, passive way, I was extremely controlling and didn't even know it. And this started actually even before uh, I, I became active in addiction. I remember years ago, when I was just a high school kid. Um, I somehow managed to gravitate toward leadership wherever I went. I didn't see that I was pushing my way to leadership. It just, just happened that I was president of everything. So in my high school, so I'm president of the class, I'm president of the student council, I'm president of the band, I'm, I'm president of everything. And I, I managed to become president of the tri-county student council. So there's student councils from three counties, I'm president. So we go to a meeting, one of our faculty advisor drives me and a couple other guys to the meeting of the tri-county student council one time. And we have what I think is a great meeting. And we're driving back, and the teacher looks at me and he goes, well, are you satisfied with yourself? I said, what? He said, really? Are you happy, finally? Are you satisfied? What are you talking about? He said, well, you jammed through everything you wanted. I was horrified, shocked. What do you mean? I did not see that I had managed to control every decision that went down in that meeting. Didn't even see it. I did the same thing at home as a married man. I had so many passive ways of putting Allie down, of making sure that things went my way. That's all that part of omnipotence. I'm like God. And I am also omnibenevolent, so if anybody is going to control the world, it should be me, because, <laughs> right? I just want everything to work out well for everyone. That's why I control. Right? God's omniscient. I'm so much like God. I'm always the smartest guy in the room. I don't need to ask for advice. Just give me time. I'll figure it out. Um, Allie, uh, Allie said that she married me because she thought I knew everything. Eventually, that illusion was dispelled, but the reason she thought that I knew everything was that I thought I knew everything. And if you ask me a question, if I didn't have an answer, I would make one up. You did not hear me say, I don't know, because I was omniscient, uh, omnipresent. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. I, in my head, kind of thought, and this was fatal to me in the ministry, and it really put our marriage under strain when I was a pastor. I really thought I could kind of be all things to all people, and whenever somebody needed me, I could be there. I don't know whether I thought I could teleport, overcommit. Sure, I can. Don't say no to anything because I'm omnipresent. I can do everything. So I double book and not even see it. And perpetually late. Because if you're omnipresent, you don't need to account for travel time. <laughs> right? Perpetually late. No. And, and this is where it's, it's wonderful that God, using our own sin and rebellion, carefully deconstructs those illusions. 
And we finally get to relax into this place where you go, oh, oh, I'm not God. I'm not omnipotent. That's okay. There's lots of stuff I don't know. My, I know far less than I, I, so I'm ignorant, and that's okay. And I'm very, very limited in what I can do and where I can be. That's okay. It is a, a hard and liberating realization to reach that I'm not like God. But at the same time, here's my, my programming was, if I was not like God, I at least ought to be like God. It's because I, I attribute some of it to just human arrogance. Part of it I blame on uh, being raised in a culture of Christian perfection. Because our theology said that it was possible for the Christian and incumbent upon the Christian always to strive to overcome sin and lead the perfect life. And so whenever I bumped up against my brokenness or limitedness, I would feel shame. In that way, I'm very much like Adam and Eve. Let's go back to the story. There they are in the garden. Here comes the talking snake, right? He makes his pitch. You can be like the Most High. That's what they buy. It's not that they wanted the apple. They wanted to be like God. So they partake of the fruit, and their eyes are opened, and suddenly they see that they're not like God. They're very, very limited. And even, if you look at it from a different angle, maybe even a little funny looking, right? They hadn't even thought of that before. I mean, the contrast between who they are and who they wanted to be was so great that they felt this wash of shame, right? And what does shame do? Shame covers up and hides, you bet. So instinctively, oh no, I'm because I'm not perfect, I'm unacceptable. That's what shame says. And I can't let you see who I really am or you'll reject me. And I already am rejecting myself because I'm not like God. And, and so they have this instant response to the realization that they're not like God as their eyes are open. And they cover up. They make these ridiculous clothes out of anything they can find. I mean, it's hardly wash and wear. It's, uh, you know, fig leaves. They're rank amateurs in this whole clothing thing. They don't, they don't, <laughs> they haven't spun a thing. They don't know how to, they don't know anything. But here they are, they've been walking around naked as jaybirds with God for Lord knows how long. And suddenly they've got to hide from each other. And then when God comes, which, by the way, in the theology I was raised in, he never would have come. Um, you know, we sang Amazing Grace, but in our theology, whenever you sinned, you fell out of grace. The bottom line was, you got all the grace you need, unless you need it. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay? If you need it, you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. So you're going to have to do some repentance. You've got to get back on the horse, all that kind of stuff. So that, because God can't be around sin and you're repulsive and all that kind of stuff. Fortunately, God does apparently not subscribe to that theology. Because even though he was well aware of what they'd done, he knew, he, he knew that paradise had been perverted. He knew that they'd fallen for the lie, that the rebellion of heaven had spread to earth. He knew that. And even though they were repulsed by their own appearance and by each other. He was not repulsed by them. And he showed up, the Bible says, right on time for the daily walk because that's who he is. That's what he does because we're his kids because he loves us, right? Now, we as a 
as a race, we as God's people, we have tended to try to use shame uh, to correct our behavior and the behavior of others. So we've worked on, I'll tell you this, I remember, this was a, if I heard my dad say it once, I heard him say it dozens of times, I am so ashamed of you. I'll tell you, here's one that stands out very clearly in my mind. Often when my dad went out of town to preach, he would bring me along to sing the offertory. So I set him up, he knocks him down. And, <laughs> and I had a, I was, I was always a crowd pleaser, the church ladies loved me, great voice, it was wonderful. So I remember very clearly, we went to this church, I sang trust and obey, man, and I killed it. <laughs> when the service was over, Dad and I sat at the, stood at the back, and Dad shook the men's hands, and the ladies pinched my cheek and told me how wonderful I was. And so afterwards, after everybody's gone, we're walking back to the car, and it's quite a walk. And my dad still has not acknowledged what a fine job I did on the song. He hasn't said a word. And so finally, I find a way to bring it up, and he turns, and, and this angry voice that I just did, he just he went, I am so ashamed of you. And I thought, I mean, I was stunned. I mean, I thought I'd done well. He said, it's not the song. He said, I saw you at the back soliciting compliments for the way you sang. That's pride. That's not your voice. God gave you that voice. It's a gift. And when you take credit for that gift, you take glory away from God. I was ashamed of what you did. I don't ever... And I'll tell you what, that, that, that lesson went deep. And I learned from that moment on to cultivate this false modesty. It's just Jesus, right? If I ever wrote a song, I, I didn't write any songs. God gave me songs. They were always His, right? Everything, it's all Jesus. Because I couldn't, couldn't accept, I remember years later, we're living in Florida, I'm out of seminary. But I haven't taken a job as a preacher. I'm working as a janitor. And that fits with this whole modesty thing. What better thing for me to do would be the Princeton-educated janitor? <laughs> and so I'm a janitor in this big church. It's a charismatic Presbyterian church. I'm there about a year, and the preacher asks me, he invites me to preach one Sunday. He's never heard me preach. He doesn't know that I've been preaching to the vacuum cleaner for a year and I'm a preaching major at Princeton. And I got a few chops, right? So when it comes my turn to preach, I tear it up. I mean, seriously, there's a standing ovation at the end of the service. I'm not making this up. The following Sunday, I was the feature story in the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel because the newspaper had sent a reporter I was above the fold on page one, the preaching janitor, right? <laughs> it was big, but here was my response. I, I preach, finish the sermon, there is a standing ovation, and I panic. I absolutely panic, and I, and I split. I didn't even close the service, I, did, I just left. And I went back to the janitor's closet, and I locked myself inside, and I stayed there until everybody left except Allie and the kids, and they had no idea where I was. And finally, the coast was clear enough that I could come out. Because, and what was it? Why did I hide? Shame. Shame. And I'd been trying to shame myself out of my addictive behavior. 
not grasping the fact that the shame spiral leads only downward and there's no floor. I even tried some so-called accountability, evangelical accountability, all shame-based, right? So we make this agreement, okay, I mean, I don't actually confess everything I'm doing, I only talk in code because I don't want to get kicked out of the church, right? So we just talk about lust of the eyes and, you know, whatever. Uh, and then pretend that anger and speeding are my big problems, right? <laughs> and then, uh, and then agree. We agree. We're going to meet together weekly. We're going to ask each other the tough questions. And then, obviously, I won't sin because I don't want to have to tell somebody else I'd sinned. That's a shame-based model, which never worked for me. By the second meeting, I was always lying, because the whole arrangement was based on the insane assumption that I could go a whole week on my own. I can't do that. So it's, it's crazy that we as Christians very often try to use shame to solve the problem driven by shame. And, and very often that's what uh, public discipline within the church amounts to. We're going to make an example out of him or her. That'll put the fear of God into the church and you know what it does? It accentuates that lesson that the church is an unsafe place and you better not get caught or you're going to wind up there. So you're on your own, figure it out, keep up a brave face, don't let anybody see how broken, desperate, hurting, lost you are. Look how Jesus does it though. Here's, here's God's solution. God provides, we know the story, right? He provides a covering with the shedding of blood, we know that story. And then comes, and that that's the symbolism for this other sacrifice. So here comes Jesus to make the great sacrifice. In our churches, we make great deal. We talk an awful lot about the crucifixion. Easter is a huge deal for us, right? It's the cross, it's the death of Christ. We tend to focus upon the blood that is shed and the fact that he endured such a painful, bloody death, and he did. We'll show that in movies. We'll read about uh, the tortures that he endured on the cross. What we will not read about and what we will not depict is what was even greater. Because Jesus not only chose the most painful, bloody death available, he deliberately chose the most shameful death available. To be not just beaten, but paraded naked through the city. Then to be taken on a hill overlooking the whole city, hoisted in the air, spread eagle, facing the city, naked. We won't show that in the paintings. We don't show that in the movies. Because we even feel how shameful that is. He chose that death. Why? Because he was dying for our shame. He was dying. He was putting shame to death. To say, you never have to hide again. It was so hard for me in those early meetings. I'd hear these people just talk about their sin in the present tense, and they did so without shame, which to me just sounded wrong. It's so liberating to get free of shame, to create a place where we can be naked and unafraid. And it's already noon, so we're going to wrap it up. I'll, I'll, we'll talk about, I guess we'll carry on the theme of not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Next week when we'll talk about how highly we ought to think of ourselves. Okay? All right. Can we close in prayer? Yeah.
Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters uh, and this journey that we have the privilege of taking together. Lord, uh, my uh, powers of communication are just not adequate to uh, the beauty and the mystery and the glory of what you are doing in us. I pray, God, that you would cause this message to rise, not just from me, but from everybody in this room. Lord, may it permeate our conversation. May it invade our dreams. Uh, may we see ourselves as you see us. I pray, God, that you would free us from the bondage of shame, those prisons in which we've been placed and in which we've placed ourselves and others. I ask, God, that you would help us to rejoice in that reconciliation, complete and unreserved, uh, that you have accomplished, reconciling us to the Father and to each other. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.